Hello and welcome to the Mountain Conversations Marine Series, brought to you in collaboration with the Marine Conservation Society, the UK charity fighting for a cleaner, better protected and healthier ocean, one that we can all enjoy. The marine environment is a fascinating one, home to the smallest and largest of all living creatures. It's also a vital resource for all life on Earth. During each episode in this series, I'll be chatting with an expert from the marine world who will share their passion and knowledge with you, along with their insights on what we can all do to help our seas thrive in the future. This is a show about hope and positivity, and it's my hope that by learning something new in each episode about the work of amazing people who dedicate their lives to making a difference, you'll be inspired to take action and get involved in the efforts to preserve our beautiful home, planet Earth. I'm Charlie, and this is Mountain Conversations. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Mountain Conversations Marine Series. Today I am so excited to introduce my guest, who is an ambassador for the Marine Conservation Society and has very kindly agreed to come and chat with me today. He is a wildlife and documentary cameraman, and I'm sure you'll be familiar with some of his work, which includes Blue Planet, Frozen Planet, and so much more. He has captured numerous on-screen firsts, like polar bears trying to capture belugas in a frozen hole in Arctic Canada, and killer whales washing seals off ice floes in Antarctica. It is, of course, none other than Doug Allen. Hi, Doug. <laughs> Hi there. Hi, Charlotte. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming in and chatting to me today. It's a, it really is a pleasure. Um, can I ask you to introduce the topic we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, sure. Well, I I would like uh, I'd like to talk about climate change, but particularly how it's affecting the polar regions, and because <clears throat> those two regions are extremely important for the world's weather, they're extremely important for sea level rise, and it's quite a fascinating parts of the world. And I've been lucky enough to have been visiting the Antarctic since 1976 and the Arctic since 1988. So I have seen with my own eyes what's going on there. And let's talk about that very subject. Brilliant. But first, I ask all of my guests, because it's a, I love to know people's journeys, that what was it that... What was it that got you here? What was it that sparked your passion for nature? You're obviously, you know, you are extremely passionate about the planet as a whole. But what was it that is, was, can you remember, was there a defining moment where you thought, ah, oh, that's what I want to do? Or was it just a progression? It, it was a progression, really. It was a progression of having a, a, a deep and abiding interest in, in diving to start with. And that, that, wasn't even, I mean, diving was a sort of personification of adventure, put it that way. Um, I remember reading Jacques Cousteau's Silent World very early on. Uh, but I also remember, you know, enjoying swimming as a child, as a kid, and, and just being outside. I mean, I grew up through the 50s, which was a very different very different age from now. And I remember spending, going, you know, going outside and playing down the park and climbing trees and all this sort of stuff. Um, I wasn't particularly interested in nature, but I did enjoy, you know, going up little hills, which felt like mountains at the time. And and just, but then this diving thing, I think um, when I was about 10 years old, I remember we were lucky enough to go on one of the earliest um, 
sort of cheap, attainable package deal holidays, you know, to Spain. And um, my folks took the family there. And of course, in Spain, Mediterranean, warm water, clear water. And I, I had, I had got a feeling for, for, you know, swimming. And I remember <laughs> throwing bottle tops in the swimming pool, the local swimming pool, and then you would dive down and keep your eyes open in the chlorinated water, sort of looking for this fuzzy shape in front of you, and then pick it up and make your way to the surface. So the idea of putting a mask on, which I tried for the first time in the Mediterranean, was just eye-opening in every sense. Suddenly you could see, you could see the fish. And I wouldn't mind betting, actually, that even back then, 1950, you know, 1960, the Mediterranean off the coast of Spain was cleaner and more rich in, in biodiversity than it is now. And it was just amazing. I really you know, got my eyes open to it. And then, like I say, I, I was just at the same time reading the Cousteau book. Cousteau was bringing out his series on the television. And this feeling of adventure, it was a feeling of adventure, really, that, that took me before wildlife and wild places in a way. It was the idea of of going into this foreign, exciting environment. And and when you think about it, you know, we were exploring into space. The 60s was a great, that was where we went from lobbing a man into space in one orbit to all the way to the moon. I mean, 10 years of progress, phenomenal. And underwater, we were doing things. You know, Cousteau was taking people underwater for it with these things like Corn Shelf 1, Corn Shelf 2, living under the sea for a month at a time, down to, you know, 10 metres and a deeper team. So there was all this idea that we were on the brink of something fantastic. And then you couple that with, um, you know, as I, as I, was at school through the 60s, I, I got interested in marine biology, so I decided to go to university um, and went at the end of the 60s, 69. So when you have that incredible you know, feeling of adventure going into space, adventure going underneath the sea, and an awareness of environmentalism that really sprang up through the late 60s and ran to the middle, almost late 70s, which was the first time it had really blossomed, or it had blossomed in that way. Huge interest. And it's desperate that it disappeared so much for the last 30 and only now is coming back again. But if you're asking me, you know, all those sort of things were influences on me. Um, and, and then it was a circuitous route from being or, or graduating with a degree in marine biology to eventually making wildlife films that took about, um, let me think, took really 10 years or so to make that transition. But when I left university, I had no idea about wildlife filming. In fact, what I wanted to do was was to stick with science, but not be a scientist. Mm. As I describe it, science at the sharp end is, I'm going to leave that to scientists. Um, for me, I enjoyed collecting the data especially collecting underwater data, because it was surprising how back even then, a surprising number of marine biologists had never actually stuck their head underwater. So I felt that what I wanted to do was leave the number crunching to other people, but let me collect the numbers, let me collect the, the samples. So I contacted, I got in touch with a, with a, um, a bunch of marine biologists out in Cambridge University. Uh, from Cambridge University, we were working in the Red Sea, 
And <laughs> it was classic. I, I read an article that had been written by one of them in a diving magazine. And I thought, well, that sounds quite interesting. So I wrote to the magazine, got the address of the person who had been the author, contacted him, wrote to him. He fed me on to people who were still working out there. One of them wrote back and said, well, we haven't got any funding to get you out here, but if you can get yourself here, then that's great. So I worked um, as a commercial diver and um, for a little while, we got enough money to go out to the Red Sea. And this was the Sudanese Red Sea. So we're not talking about, I mean, even Egypt was comparatively unvisited for divers, but the, the, the Sudanese Red Sea was, oh, it was Eden. It was Eden on Earth. I mean, it, it had the best diving in the world, but unlike the Caribbean, which was being seen to death, so to speak, by the American scuba fraternity, so few people had been to Central Red Sea. And so I went out there and helped them with their, um, with their research and and we built this platform type structure on the reef because we were out on a, on a reef about four miles offshore because we wanted to study this starfish intensively. And we used to live on this platform. The platform was built out of scaffolding poles and just planks across it. I mean, it was real Robinson Crusoe type stuff. Um, but we would live out there uh, for days at a time, even weeks at a time, supplied by people coming down to a point you know, close on shore, we'd take the boats and get fresh water, some food, etc., and then retire to a private island on top of the reef. It was just, it was phenomenal. I mean, it was such a, such a good way. And then I got this, and then I again I read an article, um, by, read an article which had been written by, by someone who had been a diving officer, um, for the British Antarctic Survey in in a base in the Antarctic. So I contacted the British Antarctic Survey and um, got a job or got an interview and failed the interview, failed the interview. Uh, and, and at that time, I was running a dive school in Jersey just for the summer. And I remember there were two letters arrived simultaneously. I got the interview for Bass and then two letters arrived, one from the British Antarctic Survey saying, no, we, you know, you've been unsuccessful this time. And then one from the Red Sea people saying, we've got another project, would you like to come back out again and do some work? So I went out and I was in the Red Sea in February of 1976 and a telegram arrived from the British Antarctic Survey saying, we've got an unexpected vacancy for a diver, would you like to go? So so in in about less than a month, I went from the Red Sea to the Antarctic, you know, and um, and I went down to the Antarctic very much unprepared in certain respects, because normally if you go to the Antarctic, you join in the UK summer, there's a conference where you meet all the people, you understand how the base works, you meet all the people whom you're going to be wintering with, you go down on a ship, big sort of shakedown cruise and things. Me, I just came back from the Red Sea and, and flew straight down to, I had about a week in Cambridge at the headquarters, then flew down to of South America, got picked up by the British Antarctic Survey ship, was on the ship for about four days and taken into the base where I was going to be diving off. So we arrived in the afternoon. <clears throat> the ship left. We arrived in the afternoon. The ship left the following morning, and that was it. We didn't see it for nine months. So I was absolutely <laughs> in the deep end. So that was absolutely in the deep end. I didn't know any of the people that I was going to be wintering with. 
I must admit, some of those early weeks, I must have come over as a real Wally, because I just didn't fully understand how the base worked, and I was probably less than diplomatic at times about some things. But anyway, it turned out being a great winter, and I, that was where I got into photography. So at the risk of, of simplifying, when you asked me how I got from A to B, it started with diving, and then I added talents and passions and experience and interests onto things. Diving was always at the core. And there I was in the Antarctic. And in photography, stills photography, was the very last thing I discovered. It was really, you know, I, I really, it was, it, was a, it was just a pastime on base, a very fervently um, followed pastime on base. Because you've got to remember, you know, back in 76, you know, we had no videos, no DVDs, certainly no internet. You know, we were pretty isolated in fact, all the communication between the base and back in Cambridge headquarters was by telex. So telex is like you type out a message and it goes into punch tape, punch tape, and you feed that into your teleprinter, which converts it into a radio signal, which goes across to a receiver and gets translated back into something you can read. So all our traffic, all the messages would go from the base to Stanley in the Falklands because the base uh, didn't have powerful enough transmitters to go straight to Cambridge. So it would go through through um, Stanley and then get um, transmitted, relayed from Stanley up to Cambridge. Um, so sometimes if the, if, the, if, the, if the ionosphere was playing up and it wasn't very good for transmitting messages, there would, might be three or four days where nothing would go out because it just was too garbled. So there was quite a sort of restriction on you. You tried to keep your messages short and to the point. And in terms of personal messages, we, the allowance was 100 words a month. Oh, wow. Sounds like but, it, writing, probably, writing on Twitter, isn't it? Well, exactly. You've probably, <laughs> probably written 100 words this morning. <laughs> but, but that was, so, that, so the isolation was real and it was genuine and it was geographical. But it was great. It was, you know, you had 16 people on base, support staff and scientists, we had four marine biologists um, and, and a couple of limnologists, a couple of people working in the lakes, all of whom used diving. So it was my responsibility to look after the equipment and to make sure that they got the backup to do the diving that they needed. And we had a, a cook, a communications engineer, diesel mechanic to look after the generators, etc. So it was, it was really, you know, it was... Very efficient, very well run, but there were only 16 of us. And so um, taking photographs and then processing them on base, either to make prints or to produce slides, was quite a big thing on base. So I got into photography at that point. So that was where my photographic beginnings came from. And then I followed it up with, when I finished that first contract, I went into South America for six months. <clears throat> and when I emerged... I decided that I would apply to go back again on the following year. So I did um, on another year and a half contract. But this year and a half contract turned into two and a half years because at the end of the summer, when I was, I did a, I did a summer and then a winter, then a summer. And at the end of the summer, I was supposed to leave. But the pack ice, the sea ice arrived early to our base and the ship 
that was supposed to come in and take me and six others out at the end of our contracts. Couldn't get in, couldn't get closer than about 120 miles. So, so myself and six others were stuck for an extra winter. So I got, I was down for one and a half years, I ended up spending two, two and a half. Some people had been down two and a half already and got stuck and made it three and a half by the time they got back. Wow. One poor guy, <laughs> Alistair, he was supposed to be only down for a summer. And just before he came, he got married and he got stuck for a summer. <laughs> he got stuck for a winter. So it was a it was a kind of motley crew, but I must admit they were all great. It was all good fun, and you know it was a good winter. More photography, and then the final clink in the in the final link in the good fortune or story is that after as I was in that very final summer, which I shouldn't have been there for, that was the summer I met David Attenborough. Wow! Having a small crew came onto base for two days. I helped them for those two days. And it was as simple as thinking, man, what a job to do. What a job, this cameraman's job. What a phenomenal job, you know, because they were such a such fun to be with. Only four of them, the smallest crew you could have. David, a producer, cameraman, sound man. But there was, you know, I knew by that time, I quite liked working in small groups, small isolated groups. I was fine. I liked photographing. I liked doing stills photography of wildlife. Um, but meeting David sort of, and that crew opened my eyes to the potential of freelance work as a, a wildlife cinematographer. The only drawback was I'd never picked up a movie camera <laughs> in my life. <laughs> but, you know, but so what? Um, so anyway, I just took it from there in a way. Again, with another chance. Uh, I, I don't know. Like I say, you, you keep... I, I must admit, when I look back, I had several... Um, several lucky breaks in, in in the terms of what was offered to me, but they were also I was given offers, and and one thing with an offer is you you can always think of why not to take it up. So you need a bit of bravery to to think I'm going to go with this a little bit. So I met David, and I thought I really want to get into wildlife filming. How can I do it? And then when I came back, I was offered another chance with the British Antarctic Survey to spend yet another winter in the Antarctic. That would be my fourth. But this time it was as a base commander on a base which had no biology and no diving. The main study was ionospherics. But, but, 12 miles from that base, there was a colony of emperor penguins. And I knew as base commander (laughs) that I could, that, that I would be able to decide to visit those penguins often through the winter. So I bought a 16mm camera, contacted the producer that I knew from David's time, said, I'm going to the Antarctic, Emperor penguins, which were highly sought after because they are the ones that breed through the winter. Mm. And the Antarctic, we're now talking about 1983, Antarctica in those days was a much, much more isolated continent than it is now. So the only way to get any footage of emperor penguins was actually to winter with them. And here I was with a chance to winter, albeit doing a different role, but with the knowledge that I could get down to the penguins periodically. So anyway, so I contacted the producer and the BP said, well, my series is almost finished, but I'll move your letter around. And it fell into the hands of another producer who was just about to start a series about birds. 
And then he gave me some film, asked me to film some things, and I did. And when I came back, I gave it to him, and he then asked me to do a bit more. And so when that series came out, I had made a significant contribution to the first programme, which is what you need to establish yourself as a camera person. You need what's called a showreel. And the best showreel you can have is to point to a programme that's going out and say, look at this. Mm-hmm. I did the first half the first programme. So that was it. That kind of launched me forth. And 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 it, it put me where I wanted to be, which was, in a way, specialising in the cold places, doing some underwater. And it got me in at a time when the poles were comparatively unvisited. Mm-hmm. You know, by the same time, it was... It was one of these periods in wildlife making history where there was a surge of interest in wildlife filming, um, which carried me all through the, you know, until, well, Blue Planet and beyond. So it was great. I, I you know, I had all that experience of the polls. And, and it's funny, I started the other way. All the things that a camera person would find difficult, the cold and, and maybe the lighting to some extent, but the cold probably. All that was was easy. I had that cracked. I just didn't know how to film at the time. So I was just, you know, Steve Lerman got that way. So you bluff a little bit about about what to do. But one of the secrets, and this is for anyone listening who has aspirations to be a camera person, sit down with an editor. Don't talk to other camera people. Sit down with an editor because editor is the person who has to make something with what you give him and give him or her. So therefore, they are the people who will say, love your stuff, but there's not enough close-ups or there's not enough shots of the animal walking out of the frame. Sit down with an editor is the fastest learning curve to becoming a camera first. Well, there you are. So, that's, so it, was, it was circuitous um, and it took a while, but it's almost like I had one life, you know, before I took up full-time wildlife filming and, and that's been life ever since. Well, it's an incredible journey. Thank you for sharing it, honestly. It's an absolutely wonderful journey. Um, Should we take a deep dive in? And can I go in with a bit of a, I don't know, I suppose it's a bit of a dark question, but it's important. And I think this is, you know, this is what we're here to talk about. Um, I'd love to know if there was, on your journeys and all all your adventures, do you remember if there was a time when you were filming or traveling that you thought, this planet is in danger, we're in trouble. Was there a moment? Well, I think it was probably more <clears throat> when I started working up in the Arctic um, and started having a lot of interaction with the Inuit, the, the local people who have lived there for generations, because they knew the Arctic and they could see the changes. And as I got to talk to them or as I worked with them, as they took me out on the ice, I realised how how a lot of the time, you know, my life was in their hands. Their reading of the sea ice, their knowledge of the local sea ice, their knowledge that they knew where the cracks were going to develop across a bay. You know, one of the places that I worked a lot out of was a place called Arctic Bay. And it sits halfway down a very long inlet called Admiralty Inlet. And Admiralty Inlet is, you know, from north to south is maybe about 60 miles long. And Arctic Bay is about 35, 40 miles as the crow flies from the mouth of the bay. And the mouth of the bay is about 35 miles wide. Now, that all freezes up in the winter. 
But at the mouth of that bay begins to break up in the spring. And that's where you find lots of the marine mammals, the narwhals, the belugas, the bowheads, birds feeding. That's where you'll find them, up at the mouth of that bay along the edge of the, the ice. So we used to travel from Arctic Bay on sledges across the sea ice up to the edge of the ice. And the edge of the ice is quite dangerous because it's not a stable place to be. The edge is breaking back all the time, bits of, you know, breaking off and drifting away. But as you would go out, the Inuit would, they would be looking for the cracks running across the bay. And those cracks were pretty dependable. And they could tell from how wide they were, how dangerous they were going to become and when they might break up. And all the time when I went out the first time, I just didn't really ask them about this. I just, you know, assumed that everything was fine, et cetera, et cetera. But when I went up there, as I did almost every year for seven or eight years on various projects, then as I spoke to them and they spoke to me more, they told me how much they learned, how much they were reading from those cracks and how much earlier the ice was becoming dangerous than it had been in the past. And they were dead right. You know, they would pull us off the edge of the ice when everything looked fine, but they would know that a couple of miles back there was an, you know, a crack opening, this sort of thing. And as I spoke to them, I realised just, you know, because their knowledge goes back generations, years, way before, you know, they were the first people to notice the environment was changing. And partly it was the behaviour of the ice, partly it was when the ice formed in the autumn. Later, you know, the berries were coming into were coming into to bloom a little bit earlier every year, just, you know, day by day, and some not consistently, some years it would be back a bit, but generally the trends were there. And these people had been talking about this themselves. And sometimes they had been talking about this to scientists who would go up there and, and you know, study it. But because the internet picked up their knowledge in a very different way, in a sort of non-scientific way, their, their opinions weren't really listened to as much as they might have been. And it was through talking to them that I realised that, that it fully came home, I suppose, how fast things were, were changing in the Arctic. And certainly if, you know, I, I got up there, 88, 89, 90, was kind of end of what I'd call the stable period, where you could say, you know, we're not going to get rain on the ice before, you know, the end of, the end of May, you know. So it's going to be nice and dry. But then once you get, rain coming down on the ice, it, it melts the snow on the top, which makes it um, the ice underneath more transparent, you know, more light flows through. So the plankton bloom is going sooner. So once the plankton bloom gets going in the water, the visibility drops off. So the weather window that you have, which is quite narrow anyway for diving in very clear water, that was shifting earlier every year because the snow was getting melted, more ice passing through light penetration through the ice plankton blue. So these sort of things, you know, I began to notice. And, and there was certainly a massive difference in the conditions um, and the reliability of the ice between the late 80s and the, and the early 2000s. It really started, you know, to go. And now, of course, you know, with ever sophisticated uh, means of actually measuring that scientifically, whether it's from satellites buzzing around on top or all sorts of measurements like this, we know that the, the acceleration and the decline of the sea ice is, 
is even more. But there's been some long-term measurements as well with submarines underneath the ice and things like that, which was sort of classified in a way up until fairly recently. But um, there was a lot of stuff going on in the Cold War, especially in the the 60s, 70s, when they um, when nuclear submarines started to get developed because they could obviously go underneath the ice and stay there as long as they wanted. So suddenly the Arctic became much more accessible to measurements from underneath when she started doing it with um, with uh, nuclear submarines. And so all that information has now been um, released. And so we, we know much more how the trend in the winter thickness of the ice, I've got sun tunnel oil going into my eyes, um, we know much more about how the average thickness of the ice in the winter has been decreasing since the early 70s. Mm-hmm. It must be. And, we, and then we can look down from above with satellites and we can see, you know, how, how the area of the ice is diminishing, um, you know, since, since about the same period. It must be heartbreaking to actually have sort of witnessed this, you know, from going through throughout the decades, from seeing it as it was to sort of where, where we're heading now. It must, it must feel, it must hit you. It's it's very sobering. It's very sobering. It is a, a classic sort of place, you know. The, the Antarctic, the Arctic, in a way, is is you know climate change. One of the issues with climate change is how slowly it's happening. It, it's inexorable, but it is happening, but at a pace so far that depending on where you're living, and I must admit, UK is fairly well blessed in terms of being one of the more stable areas in terms of being less affected by climate change, let's say, than, than, than Australia, for example. You know, but the, the main thing that we've got here is is a shift in, in some in animal and plant distribution and probably more flooding than we used to have. But up in the Arctic, you know, ice is everything. You've got to remember that, you know, the, remember that the Arctic is a frozen ocean. The Arctic, you know, when you look at a map normally, you know, it, Normally, when you open your thing, you know, your page, you look at the map, the equator's in the middle, and the Arctic looks like a wee bit of ice at the top. But if you have a globe, (laughs) next time you have a globe, then tilt it so you're looking straight down at the North Pole, and you realise that the Arctic is is an ocean surrounded by continents, surrounded by Russia, bit of Norway, Greenland, Canada, Alaska. You know, it's very much a frozen ocean. So ice is everything. And... There's no other, (laughs) the change in ice over two degrees, if that's between minus one and plus one, it becomes a different substance. Ice ceases to exist, it becomes water. And so much up in the Arctic, you know, depends on it being white. And when you start changing that white to blue or dark or brown, blue, you know, white of the ice becomes dark blue of the sea, white on the land becomes brown when it melts away, then everything becomes, you know, happens faster. It's all positive feedback, so to speak, you know, and positive feedback is very unstable. If you have a small patch of of, um, melted ground one year and that patch of ground warms up over the summer, so therefore snow that falls on it in October is more likely to melt. So therefore there will be overall until that until that warmed up land cools down and the snow starts to lie on it, you know, that's fine. But it means that that process takes a bit longer 
So overall through the winter, there'll be less depth of snow on that black patch of ground. Less depth of snow through the winter means it will melt quicker in the spring. So therefore, it was a small patch of brown the previous summer, will be a bigger patch of brown that next year, and so on and so on. So positive feedback is really important up in the Arctic. And yes, it's when everything, when so much depends on the ice, and and it's quite right, you know, I mean, there's, there's absolutely every reason to make the polar bear, you know, the poster child for the Arctic. When you ask children to name an animal that lives in the snow, 99% will be either penguin or polar bear. That's it, you know. Um, and polar bears are such magnificent animals, but they are marine mammals. They're classed as marine mammals, like a whale or a seal. The difference between a polar bear and a whale is that a whale lives in the sea and a polar bear lives on top of it. And when you take away the on top, it's like chopping down the forest round about an orangutan. You know, it just can't live there anymore. So, you know, it becomes a different animal. Now, the ice isn't going to disappear completely, but I can see that it, it will, the amount, the amount of ice in certain areas, they're either, there won't be enough of it for enough of the year for a polar bear to make a living. So at the moment, polar bears are circumarctic in their distribution. They're not evenly distributed, but you find them all around the Arctic. And there's about 25,000 pairs, I think, around polar bears around there. But it could be, well, it will be. If the ice keeps on receding, then they won't be circumarctic. They'll be squeezed in certain areas where there's enough ice through the year for them to make a living. Mm-hmm. Or they might become a new species. It's quite interesting. They've found not very many, but they've found two or three examples of what they're calling pizzlies. And a pizzly is a male polar bear, which is mated with a female grizzly. And what's happening is that because it's warmer summers, the grizzly bears, which normally stay further south, because the springs are arriving sooner, they're heading north sooner and they're going north further than they used to. And they're ending up on beaches on the shores of the Arctic Ocean. Meantime, the female polar bears, who would normally stay out in the ice, the ice is melting sooner. They don't have any ice to stay on, so they're swimming ashore. So they normally mate in kind of April, April sort of time. So in some areas, the spring has arrived early enough that the grizzlies are on the beach and the female polar bears are also on that, and the male polar bears, sorry, are also on that beach. And a male polar bear meets a female grizzly bear, mates, and that female grizzly bear, did I get this right? The female grizzly bear gives birth to cubs, which are called pizzlies. Which is really a <laughs> yeah. And it's in the, in the pee. If a male grizzly mated with a female polar bear, it would be a growler. But I don't know if they've got any growlers in nature yet. But they have got pizzlies, and quite interestingly, they've got second generation pizzlies. Okay. Normally, when you when you take two different species and mate them, you can do it, but what is the result is infertile. You can cross a tiger with a lion and get a liger or a tiger, but that is infertile. But it seems as though the separation genetically 
between grizzlies and polar bears happened recently enough that they can still mate and produce viable offspring. So it might be that, you know, the solution to climate change, as far as polar bears are concerned, is a classic Darwinian one. Let's make a new species, which is sad. Um, But, you know, it might be something that happens, you know, that happens before our very eyes. And as I say, polar bears are not going to go extinct, but I think the numbers will come down and the area that you find them in will be reduced. So maybe maybe I'll eventually be doing an episode on pizzly bears. Yeah, it could be. Pizzly bears or growers. Who knows? It's it's led me to now want to ask more questions about sort of what's going on beneath the surface. And obviously you you dive. Um, so you've seen yeah. firsthand what's going on underneath the surface, which for a lot of us is quite, you know, it's quite inaccessible. I live by the coast. I go and stand and stare at it. But I'm quite I'll admit I'm quite scared of the sea. I love it. I'll swim in it up until like you know I'll go into my waist I'd love to I'd love to dive and that's sort of my my next thing that I want to conquer is is learning to dive but you've been there you've you've seen it you're talking about the species on the land that are changing um is there have have you noticed changes in sort of the species that are living in the Arctic and Antarctic oceans or their behavior or anything that's going on that wasn't going on say 20 years ago that is now or 30 years ago well, I mean, the Antarctic and the Arctic are, are, are quite different parts of the world. I mean, you know, the, the Arctic, as I've said, is, is basically, you know, this frozen ocean at the top of the world. At the bottom of the world, you've got the Antarctic, which is a frozen continent at the bottom of the world. They're roughly about the same sort of area. But um, you can sum it up by saying when you stand at the North Pole, if you go to the North Pole and you stand on the ice, you're standing on top of a frozen ocean and the ice underneath your feet in the in the summer will be maybe a meter, a meter and a half thick. If you go to the South Pole um, in the summer, you're standing stand at the South Pole, you're in the centre of a frozen continent. Uh, you're standing on ice, but it's not frozen sea, it's frozen snow, which has become ice. And when you stand at the South Pole, um, the ice under your feet is not a metre and a half thick, it's nearly 3,000 metres thick, 3,000 metres thick. You're standing at the top of a big ice cap. And then round about the periphery of the Antarctic, that's where you've got the, the Antarctic Ocean, that's where the sea ice forms, etc., etc. And as far as I can tell, there's only there's only two um, animals which you get at both the Arctic and the Antarctic. Um, one is killer whales. But it's probably a different species. We now know enough about killer whales. You used to think that killer whales were all the same species, but we know there are at least three different species of, of killer whale in the Antarctic. Now, these are species which are geographically, ecologically separate from each other, but probably if you brought them together, they would hybridize, etc. But basically, <clears throat> you get races of orca, species of orca, species of killer whales at the North and South Poles, and you find humpback whales close, you know, both in the Arctic and in the Antarctic, and you find humpback whales. But all the other stuff underwater, the fish, um, the, you know, is all unique to each part, so to speak. Um, So in terms of what's happening with the fish and various things in in the Arctic, let's say, I'm not sure of what's happening with them. One of the key components in the Arctic and the Antarctic is this little crustacean, which is called krill. And it's about, you know, about maybe six centimetres long, something like that. Now, one of the fears about um, climate change is 
that as you increase the amount of CO2 in the air, then obviously you increase the amount of CO2 that can dissolve into the sea because the two have to be in balance with each other. So as we've been increasing the level of CO2 in the air, and it's gone up around about Industrial Revolution times, you know, around about a couple hundred years ago, it was about 250 parts per million. It's now 420 parts per million. So we've got a lot more CO2. And that CO2 is extra CO2 is dissolving into the oceans. But when you dissolve CO2 into the oceans, the CO2 combines with the H2O to produce carbonic acid. So we are slowly turning the oceans more acidic. And that makes a problem for anything with a calcium carbonate shell. So anything like mussels, corals, or krill, because krill is a little crustacean. So there is concern that the health of krill could be affected by, it will still grow in a more acidic ocean, but it has to spend more energy maintaining its shell because that shell is being dissolved all the time in the acid. So it means that that we're basically, you know, affecting the nutritious, the nutritious value of a food source, which is a key component in the food chain of so many things. But also, you know, with with climate change and in the sea um, comes change in weather patterns, which can lead to a change in, in patterns of current. And, and current is, is really, you know, can affect where, where bodies of water flow and therefore where they meet other bodies of water, where there is mixing, where there is plankton growth, where there is therefore little blooms of plankton, blooms of, of, of first of all, plant plankton, and then blooms of animal plankton, which feeds upon it, and therefore um, aggregations of fish, etc., etc. So if we start affecting those and moving them to different parts of the ocean, then that can have a big effect on, um, you know, penguins, for example, in the Antarctic. You know, penguins may have been breeding successfully at a rookery, on shore, um, and the food source will be, say, within 20 miles, which is fine. They can swim there, feed, come back, and they've still got enough food left to feed their chicks. But if because of shifting currents or acidification or for whatever reason um, that, you know, the currents offshore shift and that little clump of food, regular clump of food or area of food that those animals are depending on moves 10 miles further away. That could take it beyond the energetic efficiency point, so to speak. So suddenly the penguins, instead of 20 miles out, 20 miles back, fine to feed your chick, they're now going 30 miles out, 30 miles back, arriving back with a chick with maybe only half of the food that they had before. So therefore the chicks are not being as well fed. So you know, survival rates drop off in it. It's it's a very hard thing to measure because you you know penguins in the Antarctic and, and ecosystems around the world have always been to some extent, you know, not unstable, but they've been able to adapt, they've moved around, what have you. But we don't really know how quickly they can naturally adapt. And we also know in the Antarctic that that um, the warming of the peninsula region, for example, which has warmed a lot uh, in the last 
60 years or so, 70 years, you know, we've had bases down that part of the Antarctic in the peninsula region, which is that <clears throat> part of the Antarctic that stretches out towards South America. The winters down there, the winters on the peninsula are about six degrees, seven degrees warmer than they were in the mid-50s. And the spring is arriving sooner. So the snow is melting off the penguin colonies earlier. And that allows the subantarctic penguins, like the Gen 2s and the Chinstraps, they're able to move south. And to, because they are more aggressive in some cases than the Adelie penguins, which can cope with the snow covering the rookeries early on, um, the Adelies are getting displaced by the more northern species. And so the Adelies are getting pushed further south. And it's one of these things we don't, you know, it could have happened in the past on a sort of, you know, cyclical um, for cyclical reasons, um, and we don't know how whether this is natural, whether the dailies will manage, or whether something is happening that's, you know, all, all going to mix things up. And meantime, the you know, the, 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 there are very deep currents of warmer water which are pushing down into off the Antarctic coast, and those warmer water, a warmer water current, is carrying species further south that would normally be found there. Now, at the moment, those that's being held, you know, because of the, the warmer water is, 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 is staying down, closer down the bottom, then that's preventing, you know, the, the alien species from moving up into the shallows. But if the upper layers of water start to warm, then there, you know, could be all kinds of things going on. So it's hard, you know, climate change is, is it, it's, the ocean's a big place. You know, we started off, if you'd said 150 years ago that human beings would manage to affect the atmosphere, people would have said, no, you know, no way, the atmosphere's too big. And yet we have managed to do so. And we're now, well, we're now taking very seriously, realising that the ocean, which is far bigger in volume than our atmosphere and also far slower to to react to things, we're affecting it as well. And it's like a giant ponderous beast. But once it gets going, once the change starts happening, it's even harder to turn it around, you know, because of the lag effect. So, you know, what's happening in the ocean is is really is really quite well, it's very crucial. And the other thing, I mean I, <laughs> the challenge is that you can't you can't start talking about this without without starting to sound pretty somber. And it is somber, you know, the news. Up in the up in the Arctic, there are in fact underneath the ocean in many places, but particularly up in the Arctic, there are very big deposits of methane in the sea. When you take methane and subject it to cold and pressure, it turns into a crystal, turns into a crystal. And there are vast amounts of this crystal on the bottom of the Arctic Ocean, in the shallows on the Antarctic, on the continental shelf. And that methane is sitting there, locked up on the bottom because of the cold and the pressure. But as the surface waters above the continental shelf begin to warm up, and they warm up because 
they're less covered with ice now than they used to be, so they get more sunlight in the summer, so they heat up more. As they heat up, some of those methane crystals, which are called clathrates, on the bottom are beginning to melt. And there are areas of the Arctic Ocean where you can, where research vessels steam through, move across the surface, and the, the bubbles of methane are coming up and they're bubbling into the atmosphere. And there's been enough studies of these to see that the rate of bubbling and the areas of bubbling are increasing. And methane, of course, is a really potent gas when it comes to climate change. Methane doesn't stay in the atmosphere as long as carbon dioxide, but it has something like 50 times the warming capacity. So when you start seeing methane bubbling out of the ocean and then methane also bubbling out of the permafrost, because basically permafrost, vast areas of permafrost in Alaska and Russia are composed of frozen plant remains, which have been there for thousands of years and all frozen. But as the permafrost layer begins to melt and the melting goes deeper into the ground, then that old vegetable material begins to melt and it begins to rot. And you get methane coming out of that as well. If you take a walk across a pond, you know, in UK, stirring up the mud and things, lifting, you know, going down below the layer of mud that has no oxygen or anything in it, and you go down to that deeper layer, that's then you'll get bubbles of methane. That's what smells like rotten eggs coming to the surface. So methane is bubbling out of the permafrost and out of the Arctic Ocean at an increasing rate. And that is beginning to be measured and it's not good news. <laughs> it's not good news coming out of there too. And again, it's how do you you know, turn it around. How do you how do you get out of this positive loop? And we've now, of course, recently had you know wildfires burning year on year in the you know, across the Siberian tundra, which again is is consists of you know those, those things are burning, staying alight through the winter, sort of slowly smouldering through the permafrost, and then when the snow melts off in the, in the summer, you know they just roar back into life. Um. So, you know, climate change is very visible in both in the in the um, in the Arctic and in the Antarctic. Again, because the ice is there's so much more ice. Um, I'm not sure if the sea ice is being affected the same way in the in the Antarctic. In fact, I think in places there's actually more sea ice now than there was around the shores of the Antarctic for various quite complicated, tricky to explain local meteorology and things, but there's certainly concern about the, the actual melting of the land mass, you know, because sea ice, when you melt sea ice, it makes no difference to the to the to sea level. Um it doesn't increase it. You could if you you know a classic experiment, you take a tumbler, um, fill it almost full of water and then add some ice cubes to it. Add ice cubes until the level of water, liquid water, is right up to the rim of your glass. Then the top of the ice cubes will still be sticking, you know, above, above the water. When that ice melts, you, it won't overflow your glass because, you know, melting sea ice. But it's very different when you take ice which has been sitting on land mm-hmm. and shove that 
into the water because that's the equivalent of filling up your glass with water and then putting your ice cubes in. You know, so there's concern about the melting of Greenland and now also increasingly uh, concern about the rate of melting in certain areas of the Antarctic. And and we know and and the Greenland ice sheet has has taken a hammering in the last twenty years in terms of the thickness and, and the volume of it. And it, it's difficult to measure the volume of, of ice that's that's in um that's in Greenland. You would think that you could just you know you could sort of measure. Let's see, measure. Let's every year the satellites measure very accurately how far it is from the satellite to the top of the ice. Um, and it stays the same. But it might not necessarily be staying the same because what might happen is that the ice is, the ice is melting over the top. So, so you're losing thickness of the ice. But as you lose thickness of the ice, you also lose weight of the ice. So the bedrock underneath has got less weight of ice on top of it, so it bounces up slightly. So if the bounce up equals the loss of ice on the top, then the top of the ice stays in the same place, but it's actually getting less. So you have to resort to cleverer ways of measuring it by things like um, gravity measurements, because if you've got a large lump of ice um, underneath your, your plane, then you get gravitational, you know, it will actually change the force of gravity. And so if you get these little detection, little changes in that, then you can say, well, you know, we're losing ice, something like that. So there's a lot of interest in, in ice loss off, um, off, off Greenland. And there's a lot of interest in ice loss off Antarctica, particularly with respect to you know, what it's going to do to sea levels. But then also, if the, if a lot of extra ice melts off Greenland, then the seawater, the sea immediately next to the coast, is going to become more brackish because of the volume of fresh water going in. It's going to dilute the salinity. So therefore, that could affect the animals that live around there. Um you know, and as much as not all animals are, are adjusted to, to cope with the change in salinity, that sort of thing. So those those sort of things could be happening. Um, and generally, as I say, you know, the, 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 the off-flow of fresh water of Greenland could affect the, the distance, you know, the currents and the distribution of food around the, the coast of, of Greenland. And could um, could affect the distribution of some of the bigger animals. It's all about it's all about food chains and, and food webs. You know, a big seal or, or killer whale eats a seal, which is fine. The seal, however, has eaten you know fish, and those fish have eaten smaller fish, and those fish have eaten krill, and the krill has eaten zooplankton, and the zooplankton has eaten the phytoplankton. So when you start changing the amount of phytoplankton, the amount of plant plankton either the amount of it or where it's growing. And both those things can be affected by the ice cover, you know, from season to season. When you start affecting that, then it can bounce its way all the way up the chain. And before you know where you are, you're, you're, you know, you've then got a change in distribution or abundance of the very animals towards the top. And sometimes those animals, sometimes those fish can be commercially important species. You know, there's one or two examples in other parts of the world where, a country has had a very thriving fishery off its coast. But with climate change, the fish have moved north up the coast, so they now no longer lie within the territorial jurisdiction of that country. They lie in the territorial jurisdiction of another country. So that first country has lost its fishery, but they were not from it, has gained it. 
So, you know, that kind of thing could become could become relevant in the in the in the Arctic or the Antarctic, particularly the Arctic. I mean, the Antarctic is covered by you know, a big Antarctic treaty, which controls a lot of commercial activity in the Antarctic. The Arctic isn't. The Arctic is a much more, not a free-for-all, but, um, you know, countries' interests are much more represented in the Arctic. And, and it's all, it has always been that way. And um, there's still a lot of interest in, in um, you know, oil and, and fossil fuels being developed in the Arctic. And you just see that's where all Russia's, Oil, a lot of Russian oil is coming from, from the, um, you know, from from the Arctic Ocean, where it's, um, you know, and gas and all the rest of it. So the Arctic is a really, it's a really strategically very important place, and of course, people are also eyeing up uh, the possibility, increasing likelihood of transpolar shipping. You know, if you can send big container ships across the pole, in other words, from China or the Far East, through the Bering Strait, right across the pole down into Europe that way, then, you know, it's, it shaves two to three weeks off the shipping time and saves you transport you know, transport costs through the Suez Canal or the, you know, the Panama Canal, what have you. So um, that is, um, I can see that is going to happen in the next five to ten. We're going to have um, increased shipping all the way across the, the pole. And that will be partly because of increased technology with the ships, but also you have a much longer window of thin ice um, possibly all year round that the ships will just be able to plow their way through that and, and um, you know, increasingly sophisticated forward facing sonar ice detecting you know and, and less pressure ridges where ice flows come together and, and buckle up and push down those big pressure ridges can be a real problem even for the biggest best icebreakers but the number of pressure ridges, the depth that they go down to, and the overall thickness of them has really severely, severely, you know, diminished. And the number of those pressure ridges has gone down a lot over the last fifteen years or so. Mm-hmm. So they're much less of a problem than they used to be, and um, it would be, you know, it's just becoming more possible that commercialisation of, of transport, and of course that you know may affect some of the. Some of the whale migrations, you know, could be could be affected by my shipping by, by shipping routes across the top. I'm not sure, but uh, I think the whale migrations, uh, well, they could be affected by by the change in the ice conditions. Um, but on the other hand, they're probably also affected just by the you know the geography, the topography of the of the islands, etc. At the top of the, the you know the Canadian archipelago, so. Maybe they won't be affected so much. I don't know. It's very hard to pin all these things down. All you can say with the with the Arctic is that it's a it's a very dynamic part of the world mm-hmm. in terms of climate change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now I think it's I think it's terrifying the the absolute the power we have as humans, but we've you know the damage that we've caused through that power, and I think it's now about changing changing mindset and using that power almost to sort of reverse the process and try and try and fix what we've done so just to finish obviously we're coming to the end now um what what can we do I know it's such a hard question but simple things that people can do to be making a difference to this it doesn't you know we we can't go and individually we can't go and change the world but together we can have such an impact so what would you say to people what can we do yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of it, Charlie. I think one of the things that, you know, we're, we're kind of butting up against human nature. 
you know, we've 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 developed a system of of economics and you know material gains and and what's important in our lives, which which in in many respects there isn't fit for purpose. So people could change at their own level. They could decide that they're going to live more simply. Perhaps they're going to travel less. Um, how they're going to vote, you know, and and put green stuff at the top of your agenda and vote for the you know the party which puts the green agenda at the top of things and and we have to we just have to try to make as big changes as we can as fast as we can and and a lot of those big decisions are going to have to be made at government level you know you can't have individuals saying i'm going to build a nuclear reactor or a wind farm or something like that you know so we need to keep the pressure on the governments uh, on the powers that be to to bring in all these big important measures and to do them as soon as possible. But I think at an individual level, you know, if we can afford it, then, you know, have an electric car. Um, as I say, think about where you're going on holiday. Think about the flights that you make. Do you need to make them? Because you manage as well without a few, you know, eat less meat. Don't necessarily give it up completely, but just look at how much you eat and say, you know, I could eat less. And there's lots of, of perfectly good substitutes now um, I think um, for it so look at the whole way you live um, look at who supplies your energy go for a company that that um, just uses renewables all these sort of things help and and I think they, they also help you to you know you should feel good about yourself it, it's no use um, you know going around under a pall of doom and gloom and feeling guilty about it um, do what you can and you will feel better about it You'll feel better about it for yourself. You'll feel that you're doing something, and I think that's that's important for people's well-being. So I would um, encourage you to do all that. But in terms of the big things, you know, vote for the people who will who who say vote for the Greenest Party. That would be that would be my what I would urge people to do. And um, sadly, you know, the the planet we have changed the planet. We can change its direction. We can we can perhaps stop the the speed with which it's with which the challenges are mounting up. But we have changed some parts of it forever, and or at least within our conceivable lifetime. Um, and sadly, the Arctic is one of those areas. Yeah, and I suppose a big part of it is education and talking to people and I suppose through your role as a marine conservation society ambassador that's exactly what well that's yeah no that, that's I, I I really I enjoy being having the privilege of being a marine conservation society ambassador but also I enjoy going out and talking to people whether it's a primary school or a Rotarian group what have you I do enjoy telling them about my experiences and winding in that climate change awareness into it because it, in a way it's a, it's a it, it may not be it's not as big as the outreach of, of that some people have but I feel happy that I'm doing my part no I think it's absolutely brilliant but I would just want to say thank you so much for joining me today Doug it's been an absolute pleasure thank you my pleasure thank you Charlie right are you are you sure you've got 10 minutes yeah, yeah sure good Okay, sorry, I don't want to be a pest. I'm just like... <laughs> Once I get going, it's just waking me up. <laughs> it's all right, right. Right, so because so many people have been so excited to that I'm talking to Doug today, including myself, I've been, you know, I've been talking about this for ages to everybody. Um, 
I we've got I've just wanted to do a little bit of a bonus content for people and just I've got a couple of questions from people that I'd love to throw at you that are more about sort of you and your personal experience um a few of them come directly from me but one of them um is from a really good friend of mine Peter Lewis who is a keen diver and a really big fan of yours um sorry I feel like we're just fangirling um (laughs) um but no his question is about your diving experience he wants to know more about your cold water diving and he wants to know what's the lowest temperature you've di- you, you've sort of dived at and how was that and how did you feel and you know all those questions that come along with it <laughs> uh, well in terms of diving <clears throat> you you can't get water colder than minus 1.8 minus 1.8 is the freezing point of normal salinity seawater so and that's what the antarctic and the arctic get down to in the winter so minus 1.8 is the coldest. Um, in terms of, of the sort of limitation of diving, it's actually got more to do with the surface temperature um, and the conditions on the surface and what facilities you have on the surface. Because if it's minus 20 and blowing and you've been travelling and you've got to somehow get into your dive kit and slip into the water and things, then, then minus 20 and blowing, you, you just won't do it. On the other hand, if you have facilities like we had at McMurdo Station where I did some diving, then in that case you go out and you take a hut, a dive hut with you, and you cut a hole in the ice and then you put your dive hut over the hole, you lift these panels in the floorboards, and you can heat up the inside of your hut as warm as your living room. So you can go in, have your dive at minus 1.2, pop up, rewarm properly and all the rest of it. Um, there's no doubt that that you know nowadays there are Dry suits are much more efficient than they used to be. You can also have heated undersuits underneath your dry suit. You can have heated gloves, mitts that'll keep your hands warm. Um, you can dive with a completely dry head, so to speak, so your face doesn't even... So basically no part of you is in contact with the water. But all that means, you know, extra layers of, of um, technology, so to speak, and extra stuff to keep going. And you couldn't do that, for example, if you're working on the ice edge in the Arctic where you're driving along with a snow machine and you're not sure if you're going to find narwhal that day. Maybe you're going to go into water with them. Maybe you'll only work on the surface. So it depends what sort of backup you've got uh, in terms of how warm you can stay. But um, I quite often dive with a dry suit, but then wet hands and wet head, which means that my mitts and my, my hood will be... They let the water in, so I feel the cold against my face. And it's so long ago since I first felt the slap of cold minus 1.8 water on my face. You know, we're talking about the Antarctic in 1976. That was the first time I had that sort of temperature. And all I can say is that you you get accustomed to it. It does feel like, you know, cold and your lips go numb, but you do get accustomed to it. And, and after a while, you don't really notice it. But... Every person is, is different. I could take you, for example, Charlie, give you a bit more diving experience and then put you in the best dry suit and we could go for a dive. And you might you might be warmer or colder than me because it depends on your individual physiology and particularly when it comes to your extremities, your hands, your feet. Some people have just got better circulation in those areas than others. So, psycho- so, so cold has a physiology but also a psychology. You know, it's, you, you tend to get less cold if you're swimming around looking for marine mammals underneath the ice 
than if you've settled down in one place and you're waiting for a sea anemone to open up. You know, it's not, it's not so exciting. It's more static, so you get colder. Um, so all I would say is that, you you know, you do get accustomed to it. And with a bit of accustoming and with an interesting dive, you can certainly stay underwater for around about an hour in minus 1.8. But And if you're surfacing to somewhere warm, to a tent or a hut, where you can get your stuff off and get properly rewarmed, then about three hours later, you'll be ready to go in and make another one-hour dive. Um, so it depends on on so many things, um, you know, as to how long you can stay in the water and how cold you feel. Uh, sometimes you've got to push through that pain barrier if another 10 minutes in the water means you're going to get something special. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, well, for me, I'm a, I know it's completely different, but I, I'm a cold water swimmer. Um, oh, yeah. I think it comes from living in Wales and now obviously moving over to the coast in North. Yeah, right. I well. very much love that. And I love feeling the benefits. But I've been with people before who've, who've gone for the first time and they've got in and gone, no, nope, not a chance. I'm not doing that. But it's it's about I think for me, it's just it's the feeling you get when you push past that, the, you know, the initial <clears throat> of of oh god this is really cold and once you're in the feeling that replaces that is just so worth it for me um yeah, yeah I think I imagine I don't know if it's the same with diving but yeah. well no I think it is you know you can get the same too with climbers sometimes you get this what's called second heat yeah. don't you where you know your body when it knows what to expect and you may have to go cold water swimming four or five times or longer before it knows what to expect but it will then start to generate the the heat that you need to stay a bit warmer but also your your head gets into the space where you you get through that first initial cold bit and then definitely when you come out yes your whole body's glowing and tingling and you feel better for it but that's that's almost the same with any exercise you know those endorphins that get going when you when you exert yourself a little bit you can really feel them buzzing and they set you up for the rest of the day they do absolutely. I think the thing with the cold swimming with with me, I don't. I did a lot of cold diving, a lot of things. It's all about how accessible the cold water is. If you lived on the shore, lived next to the sea, it, I think it would be easier than if you have to, you know, get all your kit together and drive through stuff and things like that. And it kind of takes the edge off it, maybe. Probably, yeah. I mean, I'm only a couple of miles from the, 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 the coast. I can drop the kids off at school and just go for a quick, you know, even just a, a 15, 20 minute. And I'm one of these these weird ones that I don't wear a wetsuit or a dry suit or anything. I'm just oh, yeah. straight in in a swimming costume for mainly because I'm lazy and I don't like wetsuits. <laughs> but, I think but it works. It no, works. Yeah, yeah. Whatever works for you. Right. Uh, I could speak to you all day, but I'll just go with one on. more question. And I'm sure oh. it's a question you've been asked a million and one times. But, you know, humour me. <laughs> um, you've had an amazing, diverse, incredible, varied career. Is there one thing that stands out to you that you've gone, oh, my God, I'm actually here or I can't believe I'm seeing this? Um, well, it's more. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> In terms of single individual instances, um there are many, but the best ones are all characterised by being in the presence of a large wild mammal. And because underwater you have to get much closer to your subject than you would do on the surface, and you can't hide from anything underwater. Yeah, I suppose it's close encounters with big mammals 
and and particularly, well, you know, seals, humpbacks. I mean, I had a lovely time with humpbacks in Tonga. I also had a lovely time with a female narwhal up in the Arctic. And I think the thing is, it's 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 this sort of buzz that you get because these animals have got, they don't have to come close to you. If they're unhappy with you for any reason, they won't come close to you. So when they do come close to you, you can genuinely feel privilege and also pride in the fact that you've played your cards right so that this animal comes to see you. And this animal may never have seen a human being before. And the fact that you've chilled out and you probably haven't tried too hard to get close to it, you've given it time to come in and it's chosen to come in and see you. And the beauty with a mammal is that you can't speak their language, but there's so much passes between you just by being in their presence. Um, those are the those are the big things that you know that stick in my mind. And as I say, particularly underwater, where you can fly around your subject in, in three three dimensions. You know, when you get a, a you know a forty ton 10 and a half, 15 metre long humpback coming out of the blue towards you and then over the next half hour it comes closer to you and by the end it's almost it's like meeting a, a Labrador down the park that you never knew and by the end of the day you can stroke it and it might you know, fetch a stick if you throw it and you're playing with it yeah. you know, when you do that I mean if, you know, 40, 40, 50 ton mammal does that a couple of metres from you. It's got to be unbeatable. Yeah. It's got to be unbeatable. And I hate to say it, well, this is going to sound really selfish, but when you are the only person there and you don't have to share it with other people, mm-hmm. and not by sharing it, but it becomes even more, you realise even more that it's just you which has brought this animal in. And it, it just feels great. That feeling that you have when a wild animal trusts you enough to be in your company for a while, it's unbeatable. I think I think it's a bit like I've never thought of it like that before, but I'm a I, I started off life as an archaeologist and um if you're excavating, you know, mm-hmm. you could excavate something that you that it, when you when you're holding it you could be the first person to hold that for say 2000 years you know or longer whereas for in your situation you could be the only human ever to see a species or, or a particular you know, an individual of a species yeah, you, yeah, that, right. that could be it that's, that's it. i know i know that that's it, it's this sort of preciousness and and reverence is the wrong word but but it is a bit of reverence it's that intense feeling of of privilege that you have to, to have it for that little bit and, and as you say you know with wildlife filming the holy grail is to is to see animals doing something naturally which no one else has seen before they may have heard about it but seeing something for the first time and then having the tools with you and the people with you who can help you to film that and bring it back for other people to see and that's why the killer whales washing the seals off the ice floe, which was Doug Anderson and I filmed up together, another Scottish camera person. And, you know, Hillary, um, Catherine was there, the producer and things. I mean, I just had a great team on that ship. And, and when you get, it's always somehow, although I like 
the individualism of being in the water with an animal. I love the team feeling that wildlife filming is all about. I love the fact that it's a team pulling together all the way through all the stages that give you something where, you know, the, the, the end product is greater than the sum of the parts. When everybody's on song, and that's, you know, that makes it wonderful. But yeah, in the company of big, charismatic, sexy animals that have chosen to spend time with me, that's the biggest buzz. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for answer for indulging me. <laughs> no, no, my pleasure, Charlie. I'll stop recording now. Um... Speaking to Doug today was an absolute pleasure. It was amazing to just have the chance to soak up all of those stories. I could have carried on listening to those stories all day, which is why I've popped a bonus content episode for those of you who want to hear more. Doug's message was very clear. The world and the polar regions are rapidly changing, and unless we act now to make a positive change, we will continue to see irreversible damage that will go on to have a knock-on effect on food chains and global ecosystems, changing the world we live in forever and erasing so many incredible species, some of which we still know so little about. The Marine Conservation Society are doing so much brilliant work to educate, inform and implement change and it's important we listen to the personal experiences of people like Doug who has seen firsthand how much damage we have done to our planet already. For more information on the work that the Marine Conservation Society are doing go to mcsuk.org. I'll end with a Jacques Cousteau quote which seems only too fitting given the influence Cousteau had on Doug's early career. We only protect what we love. We only love what we understand. And we only understand what we are taught. I'm Charlie, and this has been Mountain Conversations.